Welcome to day 40 of Crikey's election cast. It is Friday, the 20th of May. I'm Cam Wilson. Yes, it is the final countdown. It is the last day before the election. We are almost there. Earlier today, Bernard Keane, our political editor, spoke to associate editor Amber Schultz about what have been the biggest issues of the campaign, according to media monitoring data he got his hands on, and how he expects the Teal's independence to fare tomorrow. Over to Bernard and Amber. Bernard, hi. Hi, Amber. I'm just thinking what a wonderful thing it is that it's the last, uh, the last one, but who knows? Maybe there's a hung parliament and we're going to have to keep doing this until the independents make up their mind. What do you think? Groundhog Day for another few months. Well, <laughs> hopefully they won't take that op- oak shotty in length of time to reveal their <laughs> levels of their, their support. But um, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It's been a weird few years and it might continue. Um, so let's, let's get into it. Morrison and Albanese started out with really strong campaign messages, really sticking to what uh, they had planned, what they knew. Um, Albo was focusing on aged care, childcare, wages, climate action. Uh, Morrison was focusing on the economy, unemployment, jobs and lower taxes, things their parties really uh, are are strong in. But Incentia data showed that both leaders have had to widen their messaging. Can you tell me a little bit about what prompted this change and what they had to widen their messages to? Yeah, so when, when obviously when you, you when you plan a campaign, which the, the parties will have been doing months in advance, you want, you want to be clear on what your key messages are going to be. What, what are the things that are going to uh, either shore up your support with electorate or swing voters over to your side? And I don't think it's any surprise that, that for the coalition, it's really been, you know, it's been the economy, economic management, particularly unemployment. You know, we don't want the the conversation to veer onto things like uh, inflation or interest rates, but but the broad issue of general management of the economy and and low unemployment. Whereas Labor has been much more keen to talk about things like cost of living issues, which is obviously a uh, uh, you know been a big feature of the campaign, but also issues that are traditionally strong for Labor like healthcare, uh, increasingly aged care as well, climate, uh, even though it doesn't have a significantly more ambitious uh, set of um, uh, set of policies than the government on that front. But each side has gone into that first week of the campaign with a clear idea about we're going to have, we've got a, we've got a, a number of messages we want to get across and this is what we're going to do. Um, that, of course, has changed over uh, the course of the campaign. But it's just worth stopping and looking at where the different leaders sort of started off because Anthony Albanese really started with uh, a, you know, a wider number of, of issues than. Uh, than Scott Morrison. He started off with seven issues, whereas Scott Morrison's really only hammered five, uh, and a lot of those were sort of, uh, you know, were closely related. So that in itself, I think, is interesting because I think there's been a legitimate criticism of Labor, uh, particularly in 2019, um, but really over the years since 2007, that a really effective Labor campaign has got to have a single core compelling message. Back in 2007, it was about your rights at work. It was the ACTU campaign. It was about work choices. And it was about melding that to the perception that Labor stands up for, for working people. What we haven't seen in this campaign from Labor, I, I think, is anything like that sort of compelling message. And we haven't really seen it since, since 2007. What instead we got was Anthony Albanese talking about several issues where he's trying to argue to the electorate that they're going to do a better job than the government. And I think that's immediately been a bit of a problem for Labor. I think it's prevented Labor from really giving people a compelling reason to differentiate the product and make people 
um, want to vote for Labor rather than simply voting against the government. So that's that was one interesting sort of distinction at the start. But since then, both the, the same things happened to both sides. That both sides have had to broaden the issues that they that they talk about. Now, what Icenti has done is it's it's tracked the messaging of both leaders. By messaging, they mean the things that they talk about unprompted, not not the questions that are, that they get asked, the answers that they give, um, but what they talk about unprompted over the course of the campaign. And as you said, over the course of the campaign, that list of issues has widened. Uh, it hasn't narrowed down to you know one really one or two really clear messages. It's actually broadened out. So, you know, in the case of Anthony Albanese, he's, he's began talking about productivity, for example, which is not traditionally a sort of a labour issue, but Labor's tried to own productivity by saying productivity is the way to increase wages. It's talked about manufacturing, which very much is a strong labour issue. Labor's always uh, banging on about, um, uh, uh, about uh, improving manufacturing. And he's talked about budget management, which again is not the sort of issue that traditionally plays well for Labor. Um, uh, but he's been forced to by the fact that at the you know at this point in the elections, uh, sorry, in the election campaign cycle, you know you've got to start talking about yep. your about your costings. So he's really been by both by design and because he's been forced to, he's shifted that sort of list of topics to a much wider sort of palette. And, and that's really interesting that we are seeing Labor now come out and say that they're better economic managers, which has traditionally been a Liberal Party line. Um, it, it's quite unique to see uh, that that's been added to, to Elbow's talking points. But with news that Labor's election commitments would cost the budget bottom line an extra $7.4 billion, do you think that mis- this message is cutting through or do you think it was a mistake for them to try and position themselves in that way? I think the, I mean, I, I've talked before in this, in this sort of, in this discussion forum about the fact that what progressive parties just traditionally have to do is switch the economic debate to managing the economy for working households. That's where they do it best. They don't let, if you, if you don't let the, the right say, we just manage the economy better, if, if you say, we manage the economy better for ordinary households, for ordinary workers, uh, through things like um, better wage rises, more jobs growth, more social support through things like healthcare, then that's where uh, progressives um, can make up that sort of gap. What's been interesting in, in this campaign is that there is actually a much higher level of, of positive view of Labor as an economic manager um, than has traditionally been the case. The gap between the parties, which is usually pretty significant on economic management in broad, i.e. voters just automatically tend to think the right is a better economic manager than, than the left. That gap's actually been quite a bit narrower. And in, in fact, I saw one poll where amongst female voters, they actually rated Anthony Albanese as a better economic manager than Scott Morrison. Now, that's, that's a really quite a remarkable sort of outcome. And I think it reflects the extent to which cost of living issues have become much more high profile in this issue than, than they have been at any time, I think really since 2007. Uh, 2007 was the last election, uh, not coincidentally, where we had an increase in interest rates. We had high inflation, although not as high as now. I, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we had concerns about you know, the overall direction of the economy for ordinary households. And that, I think, is, has been reflected both in Albanese's choices and, um, and the fact that there has been this much narrower gap between the parties about who manages the economy better. 
So that's quite interesting that that widening um, his messaging has worked out for Albo in in regard to uh, economic management. Where do you think Scott Morrison has really failed to to address the widening widening messaging? Well, he's never really found the right line to deal with on uh, cost of living, which is an issue that he's he's steered well clear of. Albanese has been very happy to talk about cost of living, um, and uh, and Scott Morrison has tried to uh, try to avoid it as much as possible. He's, he's wanted to talk about things like lower taxes uh, and getting unemployment down as his sort of contributions uh, to uh, the cost of living issue and sort of rely on this traditional sense that this, the economy will be better looked after, better stewarded under the right. Where he has made a calculated gamble on, on, a, on a key uh, sort of cost of living and economic issue is on housing. Now, housing is traditionally you know, a really strong area for labour. Um, and, you know, in areas like support for social housing and support for housing affordability, it's been a, it's traditionally been a labour issue. It was a really significant issue back in 2007 for Kevin Rudd. I mean, his prescriptions for dealing with housing affordability back then were pretty silly. I mean, he was, he was saying things like, well, we're going to get defence to free up a whole bunch of land near urban areas and that, you know, that'll become available for housing. But nonetheless, what he was doing was he was signalling to the electorate that he actually knew that housing was a big problem. Back then, interest rates were much higher. There was, there was uh, you know, declining housing affordability. Um, we were experiencing you know, one of our many sort of housing booms. And Labor was trying to signal back then that, yeah, yeah, we understand that housing is really important and we're going to do something about it, regardless of you know, whether those policy proposals actually ever amounted to very much. Um, Anthony Albanese has tried to do the same thing as Kevin Rudd this time around. He's had that housing policy, which is um, the help to buy policy, which is basically the government sort of you know shots into your um, into your um, uh, purchase of a house uh, for a relatively limited number of um, uh, people, ten thousand a year. What Scott Morrison has, has done in response is try and seize that territory from Labor, try and turn a Labor strength into a coalition strength, like with his super for housing possibility. And in doing so, he's deliberately picked a fight. With, uh, with Labor over the use of super, uh, about which we, we've written pretty extensively in Crikey. Now, that's done two things. One, you know, it's a bold gamble to try and push uh, onto, onto enemy territory and also to, to, you know, to, do, to do something fairly controversial, which is, you know, fundamentally change the nature of super. The other thing it's done, of course, is it's, it's switched the conversation around to what Scott Morrison wants to be talking about. He, wanted to be, he took a gamble and he wants to be talking you know, about using superannuation for something other than retirement. He wants to be talking about how it's, quote, unquote, your money. So, you know, he's, he's um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty bold move and one that certainly for a couple of days after Sunday when he announced it, you know, really did dominate uh, the campaign. Just looking at the overall data from, from, the, from, from the seven days that ICNG has actually looked at, it's still actually a pretty, a pretty small contributor. I think it's about fifth or sixth in the list of issues. And much, much smaller than things like cost of living uh, and even climate. So um, I guess in a sense, Scott Morrison's kind of been a bit of a victim of, this, of, the, of the, the, you know, the grim reality that um, the media cycle tends to move on. And he got, maybe got two good days out of Super for Housing. You know, everyone you know, went straight to their uh, well-established positions about superannuation. Um, and after that, it kind of disappeared from uh, from the mix. But I think for a couple of days there, we really did give it some oomph to Scott Morrison's campaign, um, as well as enabling him to talk about a Labor strength, but in a way that was advantageous to him. Mm-hmm. And just 
you know, staying staying on the um, on the topic of media coverage, the Ascentia data also showed who attracted more coverage, uh, media coverage across the campaign, and found that Allegra Spen- Spender attracted more coverage than Dave Sharma in in Wentworth. Were there any other candidates that stood out in the data that? shocked you for either receiving more or less coverage than you expected? Yeah, look, Allegra Spend has just been, I mean, quite amazing. I mean, she's just consistently uh, scored strong coverage compared to Dave Sharma. And in the last two weeks, ever since the, the 6th of May, she's actually had more coverage than Dave Sharma. Now, that's pretty remarkable for an independent. And it is partly the fault of the Liberals, of course, and, and, their, and their allies at News Corp, because there has been this sort of campaign of demonisation of the independents. And that, of course, is, you know, whether it's worked or not to demonise them, it's certainly given them much greater media profile. It certainly has elevated those teal independents in the media in a way that just would, you know, other independents can only look at and, uh, and dream of. Basically, these teal independents have had Australia's biggest media company regularly promoting them. Um, it may have been negative promotion, but nonetheless, in terms of name recognition, which is really so important for undecided voters, um, I think that the media has done a lot of favours, and the media and News Corp uh, have done a lot of fa- favours for the independents in giving them so much coverage. In, in Kuyong, where Monique Ryan's up against uh, trying to take Josh Frydenberg's seat, again, Monique Ryan has consistently had really strong coverage. At no stage has she, has she led Josh Feilerberg in terms of media coverage. I mean, the guy's the treasurer, so he's going to get plenty of coverage. And he's benefited from the fact that there has been this a lot of media attention on the Save Josh sort of element to the campaign. There's, there's been this sort of quite concerted effort from the Liberals to, to Save Josh. That's attracted a lot of media coverage in and of itself. So, you know, he's always done pretty well in terms of, um, in terms of getting that sort of... Um, in that sort of media attraction, but nonetheless, Monique Ryan has, um, you know, has done very well. And I wouldn't be if we actually continue this into next week. I would have expected to see uh, Monique Ryan actually getting, you know, a pretty good coverage over the last couple of days um, of the campaign. Um, all this is a bit of a mixed bag. If you look at the, if you look at, for example, Chisholm, which is you know Grace Lou seat where Labor's, well, they Labor won it, thought they should have won it in 2019 and didn't. Um, she hung on by, you know, just a handful of votes. Uh, and Labor's, you know, very, you know, basically desperate to get it this time. They, you know, they absolutely need to sort of pick up this sort of seat. Uh, Gladys Lou's coverage, it just has been out of sight. I mean, she's had more than 90% sort of coverage, you know, in terms of uh, her, her and her opponents over the last week. But a lot of that has actually been negative or it's kind of been neutral. You know, there's been court cases. There was uh, Scott Morrison's visit to the electorate where that guy, impersonating uh, the North Korean guy showed up. Um, you know, it just goes to show that, that not all coverage is necessarily, you know, uh, you know basically is, is either political coverage in and of itself or, or particularly useful coverage. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, again, in terms of name recognition, I think uh, um, Gladys Lou would have been pretty happy with, uh, with that particular outcome. Then one of the tests of this, of course, will be to see whether all this profile actually translates into votes. I think that's going to be one of the fascinating sort of aspects of the of these seats, like um, you know, like uh, like Kuyong, Goldstein, Wentworth, um, and uh, and McKellar, is whether this you know all these high profile, uh, all, all this sort of media attention being paid to these independents actually results in people in the in the in the polling booth actually you know putting a one against their name.
Mm-hmm. And, and just finally, you've written today that the only way to address state capture is to disrupt party politics via grassroots politics, which is exactly what these independents are trying to do. And as you've outlined, doing you know pretty successfully in, in becoming known figures. Do you think that this disruption is likely ahead of Saturday? What's your oh, take look, on Look, I don't think there's I, – I think kind of with the consensus crowd, which is that the, the teal independents are not you know, are not going to have a you know massive swing of success. They might get one or two seats. They're probably not going to have, uh, you know, they're not going to seize you know the likes of North Sydney, you know, where Kylie tinks up against Trent Zimmerman. Uh, you know, McKellar might prove beyond them. Although I keep hearing very interesting things from uh, from McKellar. So I'm not I'm not expecting there to see a, you know a big in you know incoming group of independents. But I think if we did, that'd be great. And the more independents we've got in Parliament, the better, because I do think that our politics at the moment at the federal level is really quite dysfunctional. Uh, we've got government basically operating as a, you know, a cash for policy scheme, um, which has been run for the last nine years by uh, the Liberal Party. Things will, would improve under Labor, but not necessarily improve a great deal. You've only got to look at state Labor governments to see that um, uh, you know, if you want to see significant reform, if you want to see big action on climate, for example, if you want to see, you know, greater integrity in politics, well, you know, you might be wasting your time uh, hoping for that from, um, uh, from, from a Labor government as well. So, you know, the, 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 that's, all, that's all often the future, depending on who wins. But I think the one way to guarantee that we do get real action on key public policy issues like climate and we start changing the nature of politics is that we do have a lot more grassroots uh, independent politicians or minor party politicians coming into parliament. And, um, you know, as I say in that piece, I think it'd be great if we had 151 voices of movements right across the country in every electorate where the, lo- you know, the local community voters are actually getting together, talking about the issues that are important to them, talking about how best they can get action on those issues. And that might be by backing an independent candidate. That might be by trying to be, you know, better coordinate pressure on um, you know, incumbent major party politicians. I mean, that's a decision that um, you know, some voices of can- uh, movements have, have ended up arriving at rather than backing someone to go into parliament and disrupt things. But nonetheless, I think that sort of conversation is one that's got to be happening far more often in Australia because otherwise we're going to be stuck with this sort of state capture politics where the public interest is, um, you know, a pretty distant second to vested interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a lot more political engagement across the board. Well, thank you, Bernard, so much for, for joining me on this Election Cast podcast. Uh, we will have another edition of Crikey out this afternoon and rolling coverage of the election across the weekend, so stay tuned for that. And, of course, if you'd like to listen to previous broadcasts, you can find Crikey's Election Cast on most podcast platforms or on crikey.com. I'm Cracky Associate Editor Amber Schultz. Thank you so much for listening to Cracky's Election Cast with Political Editor Bernard Keane and have a lovely weekend. That was Cracky's Political Editor Bernard Keane talking to Associate Editor Amber Schultz. Thank you for listening to Cracky's Election Cast. We'll have at least one more episode. It will probably be on Sunday, so keep your eyes peeled for that. In terms of what we're doing for the election tomorrow, we will be doing a live blog throughout the day and the night, so please keep your eyes peeled for that. Head over to crikey.com.au for all of our coverage of the election and more, and we'll be back in your ears soon. Bye.